HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Cane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.cane5.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. I am Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you from roughly 12 to 12.45 every Tuesday here in the studio with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. We're coming to you from the Heritage Radio Network in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. So listen, Nastasha, what's the telephone number to call in? 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. 2128? Yes. Good. Um, Just so you know. Uh, it's kind of a thing. I can't remember the dang telephone number of this place. When it comes to cyogenic glycosides, I'm there for you, buddies, but with the telephone number, can't help. Listen, we have a caller on the air, so let's go right to it. Hi, Dave. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, I've got a two-part question. All right. First one, I'm in London. Where should I go for drinks? Uh, well, that's easy. Before you even go any further, that is simple. Anywhere that my friend Tony Canagliaro is involved, you should go immediately for drinks. Uh, the one that I go to all the time is 69, excuse me, <clears throat> I biked here at about a thousand miles an hour, so my throat's a little scratchy. Um, so 69 Colebrook Row, it's uh-huh. in Islington, it's uh, like a 10 minute walk from the Angel Tube Stop, <clears throat> I can't believe I said Tube Stop on the air, uh, and uh, where else did you like when we were there, Nastasha, where'd you go? Oh, I don't remember, I wasn't with you most of the time. Well, that might work, because I, I work quite close to the Angel Tube Stop, um, and now we said it twice on the air. What kind of drink should I, should I get? Wait, uh, anything. Uh, here's the thing about it. Like that, I, nine times out of ten, I mean, look, Tony's a friend of mine, so when I go, I typically don't pay, which means I don't go anywhere else. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I've had most of my drinks there. That said, I mean, have we been to Hicks? Um, <coughs> I apologize, man. I have to bike here earlier. It's just, seriously, I was breaking my neck to make it here because I was researching stuff, so I have something caught in my throat, and I didn't have time to get it out, so I apologize again. Uh, <clears throat> so Tony is a, is, runs a very interesting bar there. He also has a new hotel bar, but I don't know what it is. I thought he has a, a lab in the Pink Floyd Studios, the old Pink Floyd Studios. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> I think the drinks also might be interesting. There's a new restaurant, restaurant uh, um, in, excuse me, <clears throat> Remind me never to do this again. Always give myself five minutes before we start to, uh, no matter how late I am, to get whatever is in my throat out of my throat. So, uh, Quince, the new restaurant, I think, has some interesting drinks as well, uh, and Hicks. But Tony uses high-tech stuff, like rotary evaporators, centrifuge, but you would never know it in his bar, because the bar is like a little tiny like neighborhood bar that just happens to serve some of the best drinks uh, in the country. 
And it's not me saying okay. that. He's rated like constantly like one of the best people. But like whatever they're making, my trick is I always walk in and say bartender's choice. What do you want to make? And then typically, <clears throat> you know, if you if you if you tell them that your game for whatever they're going to make, typically they will make you something interesting. If they, if uh, you know if you're like I I really like tasteless vodka drinks, well then they'll size you up and they'll give you something. I mean, Tony will still give you something good, and all of his people are good, but. You know what I'm saying. A bartender's choice is always the best choice. Right, but can I say bartender's choice, preferably with whiskey? And well, still yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's perfectly respectable. I mean, <clears throat> look, they're actually one of those great places where they're not going to make you feel bad there for whatever you drink. They're not, they're not snobs that way, even though they're mm-hmm. some of the best people in the business. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, you, I mean, you know, definitely, typically what I'll do is I'll say uh, – you know, your choice. I'm feeling kind of like a brown liquor today, or maybe I'll say whiskey or something like that. And they can, they 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 have all things there, but they do a lot of really interesting stuff. And they have okay. a piano. And certain nights, there's tranny bands playing. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. Um, all right. So the second part of the question is, uh, what are your feelings on water chestnuts? Ah, interesting. <clears throat> water chestnuts. Okay, so my wife detests water chestnuts. So do I. Really, I, I like them. For her, it's a textural thing, and uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> at one point I said to her, look, uh, maybe it's that you don't like canned water chestnuts, and you grew up eating canned water chestnuts, so I made them fresh. And she's like, no, I hate these too. And I was like, oh, is it similar for you? Is it a textural issue? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really add anything in taste. I don't like the crispiness of it. Um, I pick them out of every food, and I cannot for the life of me understand why anyone thinks it adds anything to a recipe. What do you, what do you think, Nastasha? I bet you hate them too, Nastasha. I used to like them as a kid. I hated them. <laughs> Yeah, Nastasha hates most things, though, so. Uh, yeah, you know, you and my wife are in the same camp. I'd like to, I kind of like, they have a very <clears throat> unique, um, okay, so the texture is crispy in the way that a raw potato is crispy, but without that raw potato mm-hmm. flavor. So right. if you like the texture of a raw potato, but not, not, the, not that raw starchy flavor, then a water chestnut seems like it's a good bet for you. <clears throat> if you don't like that texture, I think you're going to be in trouble. Would you agree or no? No, I agree. It's the te- I mean, I'm not looking for a raw potato texture either, I guess. Right. And water chestnuts and certain other things that grow in uh, the water like that can have uh, um, parasitic worms in them. I think it's worms. Maybe it's a bacteria. I forget. So you need to cook your water chestnuts before you, uh, before you eat them, if you get them fresh. <clears throat> so don't you know, eat them raw. Uh, well, you shouldn't eat them at all because you don't like them. But here's a, here's a good um, thing that uh, Nils Norin always used to get uh, water chestnut flour – and he said that for dusting a fish and frying, uh, <clears throat> he loves water chestnut flour. And I think that's a trick he picked up when he was working in China. Water mm. chestnut flour is not so easy to come by here in the U.S. I don't know about the U.K., but it's definitely available. So maybe there is a, a use for water chestnut for you yet. Well, I'll look into it. Um, and one final thing, Dave. It's, uh, it's actually Brady. Brady! Hold, yeah. Oh, this is my cousin Brady. I didn't know you hated. In the beginning. I didn't know you hated water chestnut. Uh, water chestnuts. Brady no, actually, and they keep showing up in the Thai dishes here. I'm like, why do people do that? It's ruining the dish for me. And I thought I'd, uh, I'd ask you. Well, uh, this is interesting that I, unrelated, you know, just we're family by you know my, by marriage, my wife and, and Brady and and me actually. But uh, the uh, two people in the family that hate water chestnuts, the only two people I know, are people who regularly come to my house. When are you coming back to the states? Right. right. But that's good because if Jen hates him, then that means he will not make him while I'm there. So correct. Go to Tony's bar, or I'll kill you. And you never invited to my house again. No, I'm going there today after work, so I thought I'd call. All right, cool. Thanks a lot. All right, see you. All right, listen, <clears throat> I, I'm going to recover my throat, and we can take the first commercial break. Come back, and I'll answer some email questions. Call in all your questions too. Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's ah.
Welcome back to Cooking Issues. I am almost fully recovered. Uh, you know, I must have swallowed something when I was riding over here. Just to give you an idea of what you're dealing with when you're biking from Manhattan to Brooklyn. I passed by a concrete factory on my way over here. And a giant, uh, you know, uh, what are those things called with the big thing in front? The scoops? A bulldozer. <clears throat> a bulldozer dumps an entire bulldozer, like, you know, shovel load of dirty concrete water basically on my bike as I'm biking past him. That's, that's Brooklyn. Anyway. Call on your questions too, 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We're going to be here for a little while because I got some email questions to answer. All right, by the way, uh, we have this new kind of thing. People just call in with kind of information and shout outs. Have you noticed that recently? We've gotten a lot of people just writing in with some info. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so here's some info. For those of you who are in the New York area and don't have a job, <laughs> Uh, or who have a nighttime job. Right. Uh, Tom Metcalf says uh, there's a really good movie that you should look at at the moment today. It's Museum of Modern Art. Jiro Dreams of Sushi uh, is basically uh, it's playing at um, t- today. I think August 23rd is today, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. 4 p.m. at MoMA, and uh, the film is about Jiro Ono, the best. Uh, Jiro, uh, Jiro Ono, the best. The best. I mean, I hate the best, but like you know, one of the world world's most renowned sushi chefs in Japan, in Tokyo. And chronicles his lifelong uh, complete devotion to becoming ever better at his craft. And uh, Tom believes that uh, I uh, have made some comments that suggest I would admire his work ethic. Uh, I've seen it. You seen it? Was it good? It was good. Yeah. Compare it to the Ferran Adria movie. Ferran Adria was a bit better. Well, well, it was relatable, I guess. Right. Well, so yeah. listen. we actually had the filmmakers on uh, a taste of the past, episode sixty, mm. for those who want to hear. Please go. Please go listen to that. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing. Uh, view, uh, listeners uh, to this show are kind of specialized. Uh, they have specialized interests, right? So I went to go see that. What's the name of the Front Adrian movie that we we uh, did the event for? What's it called? Um, well, it's the movie about Front Adrian. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> it's a. Uh, so some reviewers have criticized that it's basically just food porn. And how much can you? <clears throat> how, how how long can you sit and watch, Ferran tasting different pieces of food? This is a valid criticism for someone who's not interested in the process of making food, right? So uh, I went to go see it, and I thought it was extremely interesting because it gives you an insight into the way that uh, El Bouilly and Ferran, how they work, <clears throat> how they cook, how their process is. Uh, and as a, as a cook, as someone who's interested in cooking, to me that's extremely valuable because Ferran is clearly uh, at, the, at the very top of uh, his game, at the top of the field in what he does. Um, <clears throat> so it, it would be extremely interesting, I think very, very worthwhile, for anyone interested in Japanese cooking techniques, which I am extremely in, you know, interested in. I wish I could go to it today because I would, but unfortunately I can't drop what I'm doing this afternoon and go. Um, I'm sure I'll see it eventually. Uh, it's very difficult to get an insight into Japanese cooking techniques because uh, the mode of learning in many high-end Japanese kitchens is one of years of careful observation without uh, much explanation. Let's put it that way. And so really the only way to learn what they're doing, you're never, you know, you're never going to learn what you're doing right because you have to sit there for you know, two years – uh, you know, <clears throat> washing the rice before they let you cook it, or whatever, whatever the old, you know, the old things are. But um, <clears throat> in a in a in a Japanese or really any cooking demonstration, don't who cares what they're saying? Don't pay any attention because nine times out of ten, they're not telling you what's really going on anyway. Pay attention to their hands. Pay attention to the ingredients they're using. Pay attention to the the way their hands move, uh, <clears throat> and these kinds of things are going to give you a big clue as to what is. Uh, what is actually going on in the food. So, and this is why videos and live demonstrations from top-notch people are so valuable to watch. And so the ability to see in a movie uh, someone like this working is invaluable. So I do, I do hope to see it, and it can almost be – I mean, it can't be silent because I have to hear what the ingredients are, what's going on. But the explanation and any sort of plot or arc or narrative, I really could care less. Uh, and, and, and I shouldn't probably say that. That's a mean thing to say. But you know what, you know what I'm saying. It's like for me it's going to be valuable either way. Do you think it did uh, – who did you see it with? Mark. Did Mark find Mark, – we're talking Mark Ladner from Del Posto. What, did he find it valuable? Yeah. He did. Yeah, I bet. You know, Mark likes fish. Mark likes to push your fish. Mark used to get in those whole kindai tunas, butcher them up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and send them back. Anyway, so very valuable for anyone interested in learning something about Japanese cooking. Um, yeah? Yeah. 
So thank you, Tom, for writing in that information. Uh, another uh, interesting uh, piece of a uh, little tidbit comes from Steve Crandall via the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they had an article called Scooped. And here's something I'd never heard of, fracking. Have you heard of fracking before? No. I mean, other than the, I'm going to, okay, yes, I have heard of fracking from Battlestar Galactica. Yes, I have seen the new Battlestar Galactica thing. But I hadn't heard of fracking the, uh, the term. And uh, fracking is basically hydraulic fracturing. So what you do is you're drilling for uh, oil or whatever. You drill a pipe way the hell down into whatever you're going to do. And then you put a huge pressure on it to fracture the rock under there. And then you pump in uh, junk like sand or whatever to allow whatever you're trying to get, oil, to filter through that and you get it. It's a way of getting more oil or water or whatever out of it. But a lot of people are pissed off about it because it can, you know, pump poison into the aquifer, stuff like that. You know, anyway. So I will read the Wall Street Journal thing because it has to do with guar gum, guar gum. Fracking has a new victim, ice cream. Oh, oh, I was just handed by, by, by Jack a no-frack button. Jack, I didn't realize that we were, uh, we were a, uh, an anti-frack That doesn't represent my opinion. Somebody left that here. Oh, so in other words, some of our hosts and our guests are anti-frack folk. Correct. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, apparently, they're fra- this is anti-frack button from the CatskillCitizens.org. Uh, so presumably, there's some fracking, a whole lot of fracking going on up in the Catskills. Pre- pre- presumably for water and not for oil. Anyway. Uh, fracking has a new victim, ice cream. Hydraulic fracking, this, uh, fracturing, the sometimes controversial oil and gas drilling method, is causing tremors in a small but vital corner of the food industry. This is, I'm reading verbatim for the Wall Street Journal. Guar gum, produced mainly in India, helps thicken foods ranging from ketchup to ice cream. The problem is it's also mighty useful in fracking fluid. Fracking fluid is the fluid that they pump, pump, pump into, the, uh, into these places to actually cause the pressure to fracture them. With the surge in fracking, demar- uh, demand for guar gum has rocketed. Having often languished under 50 cents per pound, guar gum has recently changed hands at over $3. Uh, and so this is going to cause problems because they use a lot of guar. Uh, in in ice cream, and the reason they use guar is because guar is cheap. Uh, the guar <coughs> is from a seed, and it's very similar to another product called locust bean gum. Locust bean gum is actually, for a lot of applications, better, but uh, because locust bean gum doesn't have a, a kind of tasting. Most guar is kind of crappy tasting. It tastes kind of crap. It has a beanie. It's called a beanie taste, kind of like eating uh, black eyed pea flour. If you've ever done that, I don't know. I don't know why you would. I have many times. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, they, you know, TIC Gums, the good people from TIC Gums, make a, something called flavor-free guar, which is awesome. And guar and uh, gelan, another hydrocolloid, is what we use to make the stretchy ice cream that I like so well. Uh, but guar has been cheap. So if guar prices go up, good for the poor sons of guns that have to sit there and harvest guar. You know what I mean? Good for them. You know, if we have to pay, like, you know, a nickel more for our ice First of all... $3 a pound, let's put this in perspective, what $3 a pound means for a uh, guar. So you're going to have well under, well under a half, one half of 1% of uh, guar in your ice cream, okay? So <clears throat> we're talking that, uh, you know, a minuscule amount cost-wise increase in uh, your ice cream. So if all of a sudden a bunch of people uh, in the oil industry, and I'm not saying, I'm not pro-frac, not pro frack here, but uh, it, you know, if, if some poor sucker in India gets like, more for their guar seeds as a result of this, God bless them. I'll pay the extra five tenths of a penny for my ice cream. Does this make any sense, Nastasha? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Guar. All right. Uh, guar. It, yeah, I like guar. I mean, it's it's interesting. Uh, our good friend Paul Adams from Popular Science, he uh, writes mainly for their online, but I think he's going to be doing something in the magazine as well. Uh, he did a nice write-up of the Glenlivet uh, experiment I did yeah. in New Orleans where I was separa- separating Glenlivet scotch into uh, oak and, and spirits. And yeah, you can read about it on popscience.com. Uh, anyway, he writes in that Popular Science is doing some challenges, and uh, maybe some of our readers are interested. So the idea is is that <clears throat> some knucklehead, and the, the website is uh, innocentive.com, innocentive, C-E-N-T, like, like innovation incentive, innocentive.com. So they basically offer an award, and the idea is, is that any knucklehead who wants to can write in and uh, <clears throat> You know, propose a solution to the problems, and if you win, you get either ten thousand dollars or a chunk of that ten thousand dollars. And the guaranteed minimum 
the guaranteed minimum, like maximum. How am I going to put this? So the the there will be someone who gets at least five thousand dollars. They might get the full ten thousand, and they are going to give ten thousand dollars away. Make sense now? Yeah. All right. So <clears throat> this one here is, uh, and this one, by the way, is the one he sent us. Already has three hundred and seventy three people who have signed up with solutions. Most of them, I'm sure, suck. Oh come on! Oh come on! Most things in the world are bad. So why wouldn't most of the solutions to this problem be bad? The problem is, over time, low-fat batter for baked products sticks to the baking surface of aluminum baking pans. No duh, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I didn't mean it that way. <clears throat> the stuck batter burns and must be removed from the baking surface. The Seeker, that's the company here, is looking for creative ideas for reducing either the adhesion of batter to the baking surface or for improving the speed and efficiency of the cleaning process, and more information is available from their challenge description. And so basically... They want you to come up with a new release agent or a nonstick baking surface or a new way of cleaning. But you only have a couple more days to solve that problem. Presumably, they're going to have more of these. I have a solution. But Add that- some freaking fat to the batter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Add some freaking fat. What is the problem with having a little fat? Here's you're the thing, right? You're going to answer the question. Why, what? You're going to help them out. No, they're is not going to add fat to it because they want to make a low-fat product. And therein lies their problem. Therein lies the problem. Look. Why is a waffle batter different from a pancake batter? Hint, it has more fat in it so that you can get it off of the waffle iron, right? Uh, when you have fat in these things, right, typically if you're a normal human being and you're not paying attention to what's going on, you eat slightly less of it and you're slightly more satisfied because there's more fat in it and you get more sated. The idea that you – I mean like – you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying like have your baked goods swim, swimming in grease like a Popeye's biscuit, which are also delicious, even though they're – you don't like Popeye's biscuits? I don't like biscuits. You don't like biscuits? Jack, help me out here. You don't like biscuits? People, people, this is what I'm dealing Maybe with the out there. the first person I've ever heard say that they don't like biscuits. Yeah, you know what else, Jack? Like, this is interesting. She'll, like, later on, she won't say it on the air, but she'll be like, it's because I'm so discriminating. What? What? So you say things like, I don't like peanuts because I have a more discriminating palate. No, it's not that I can't discriminate a peanut. It's that they're delicious. Biscuits are delicious. Okay, we need to talk about this for a minute. Like, even if it, even if I can't answer all the questions, what is it you don't like about a biscuit? I don't like how how dry and, and flaky they. I, I just. Like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, why don't you put butter on the biscuit? It, no, I still. I just. I really don't like biscuits. I like bread. I also like bread. I don't like biscuits. I see. Here's another thing. It's this like is like hard this... tack. It's nothing like hardtack. Hardtack is a form of biscuit similar to a beaten biscuit, which is nowhere near like the standard biscuit that we eat. First of all, there are fluffy biscuits and there are flaky biscuits and a, a, a huge range in between depending on, uh, on the hydration ratio and how, how they're mixed and how they're formed. Okay, so let's just start there. And, uh, and then like this is a kind of a classic thing that I don't understand. And, and so like, you know, if anyone ever, you know, uh, tries to analyze uh, like – the, relate, the working relationship here. Here's what I don't get. I don't like biscuits because I like bread. What she leaves off is like uh, uh, an implicit instead. Like I like bread instead of biscuits. I can have – in a single meal, I would consume several slices of bread. And then where I handed a biscuit, I would also consume several biscuits. Jack, back me up on this. I uh... – he, he doesn't want to get in. He doesn't, <laughs> doesn't want to get into it. Anyway, <laughs> don't like biscuits. Don't like biscuits. I love biscuits. Yeah, biscuits are good. I like a flaky biscuit. Especially the biscuits at Roberta's. Uh, they are good. Seriously, that's not even promotion. They're I, just I, good biscuits. I can't remember. Do, do they do a, a flaky or a We'll, we'll uh, have to give cakey. you guys. We'll get you two no. biscuits. Yeah, please. Show. That'd be great. Yeah, and we'll talk about them next time. Uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> my saying is just add a little bit of fat to your baked goods and cook it a little bit less. Whether it's uh, a waffle or, or some sort of, you know, you're not going to cook biscuit in an iron, obviously. Like maybe it's cornbread or something, and they're trying to re- reduce the amount of fat in cornbread. Maybe. Absurd, absurd, absurd. Okay, uh, not really. Look, I'm sure there's many people who think it's a good idea to reduce the fat in their baked goods. I just happen to think they're wrong. They are wrong. Yeah. Just eat less. Just eat less. Right. Just eat less and be more satisfied with a better product. Right. 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 Although apparently this is marketing that hasn't worked. People just eat. Then they're like, oh, it's okay to yeah, eat high yeah. fat, so they just yeah. eat more of it. Stupid. By the way, uh, there, we spoke to a person uh, th- this last week named Pat Brown, and uh, Pat Brown is a doctor and it is a, has a, a, a company out in, um, 
in the San Francisco Bay Area, and he's interested in making uh, basically not meat analogs, but things that someone would choose over meat. In other words, that they 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 <clears throat> they are a viable main source of protein that are built not just as a protein that you know has crap sprayed on it that kind of resembles meat, but actually engineered from the ground up to be delicious, such that someone who is a meat eater would choose it based on its taste and its inherent uh, low cost over uh, meat. What do you think? Okay. Anyway. Gonna, next time I'm out in the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to visit him. But he's the only person I've spoken to who wants to do plant-based. And he has a, kind of an interesting philosophy. He wants to put all uh, meat and dairy farmers – literally, he'll say this. He wants to put them out of business. Like, he's, like, he's like, you know, to make an omelet, you got to crack a few eggs. The world's going to be around for a long time, and these guys are hurting the planet. So even if it hurts them right now, you know – you know, you can't you can't help out someone now at the expense of killing your grandkids, which is, is basically. Is he a vegetarian? Yes, he's a vegetarian, mm. but he doesn't necessarily want. He doesn't want to make. He doesn't want to beat you over the head and have you become a vegetarian because he's a vegetarian. He wants you to buy this uh, this plant based food because it's so freaking delicious and so cheap that it's what you want to do. Mm. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's an interesting reversal, and he seems like an interesting guy. I can't <clears throat> wait to go out there and meet him. Okay. Uh, have a question in from Priscilla Andrews regarding transglutaminase noodles. And I'm going to have to apologize in advance, Priscilla. I don't have the answer for you right now. But the question is, what is the starting ratio when using meat glue and gelatin to glue fruits and vegetables together? Any help is appreciated. Okay, so what we're talking about here is um, using transglutaminase, meat glue, which is an enzyme that uh, bonds proteins together um, to make gelatin – into something that won't melt when it's reheated. So this is a technique that uh, was developed by my brother-in-law, Wiley Dufresne, of WD-50 Restaurant, where what you do is you take gelatin, right? normally gelatin, when you heat it, uh, it melts, and when, uh, if, when it cools down again, it turns back into a gel. <clears throat> if you take transglutaminase and mix it in with the gelatin, the gelatin cross-links, and now it no longer melts again. So it sets, and never again will it melt. And so Wiley uses this technique to um, basically uh, make noodles out of anything. So quinoa, peas, uh, peanut butter, things that you can't normally glue together uh, or can't normally make a sheet or a noodle out of. He can make one out of that can be fried, uh, tossed like a pasta, uh, anything. So basically... The trick with it is, is – and I would start with about 1% trans – I'm just making this up because I don't have the recipe in front of me. And Hervé Maliver, who runs the, who runs the tech stuff when I'm not at the, at the French Culinary, he has the recipe because Wiley came and demoed it once. And I just keep on forgetting to write it down. But I would best bet it's somewhere about 1% transglutaminase, not Activa RM, which is meat glue plus uh, casein, milk protein. But Activa TI, which is just the meat glue. And the reason is, is because you want uh, gelatin to link to other gelatin. If gelatin links to a casein molecule, that doesn't increase the gel strength, okay? And also, if you're gluing together a veg or something that has a lot of protein in it, right, like peanut butter or something, you don't want the gelatin bonding to the protein from your product either. So uh, what you... What you want to do, and uh, John McGee, Harold's son, who's one of the TAs in the lecture series up at Harvard, the food lecture series, which I'm going to be doing with Harold uh, on September what? Sixth and eighth. Sixth and eighth, and there's a public lecture for those as well, yeah. right? Yeah, I think there's a public lecture in the evening uh, after the students go there. Uh, so his son uh, did like a couple day stage with Wiley to figure out this problem of what's the best way to do it, uh, and of course I forgot. But basically what you do is, is you make a paste, you dehydrate it to get a lot of the water out. You don't want it to be too watery. Then you make a gel slurry and use however much gelatin you would normally use to set what you're doing. I think that's a good starting point or maybe a little more. Uh, while it's warm but not hot, the gel, <clears throat> the gelatin, mix in transglutaminase, uh, Activa TI, right? Let it sit for several minutes, start cross-linking you know, while it's warm, and then uh, whisk that together uh, with your uh, product sheet it out, and let it sit overnight in the fridge, at which point it should be set. But I wish I had a better information for the starting ratios. 
All right, so we're going to take one more commercial break and come back and answer some questions. Call in your questions to... 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking issues! That's a pretty good Dave impression. Thank you. Nastasha making fun of me for not being able to remember the dang number of the radio station and furthermore making fun of me for the earlier one, the I want to ride my bicycle for my constant bike problems here in the city. Thanks, guys. Thanks. I appreciate Anytime. the support. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Caller, you are on the air. Hi, Dave. Uh, I have a question about gum Arabic and simple syrups. I'm in the New York area and I'm looking to pick some up. And also, I'd like to just know how to add it to simple syrup, like a, just, you know, one cup water, one cup sugar, how much to put in. Okay. So um, it's interesting. We're going to pick it up in – if you want – if you're in the New York, if you're in New York City, I believe uh, Calustians uh, on Lexington in the 20s has it. Um, if they don't have it, there's a place called Dual Specialty Shop down in uh, – where is it? First Avenue, Avenue A, mm-hmm. down near Death & Co., the bar. <laughs> That's how I remember where it okay. is. It's close to Death and Co. Uh, and it's downstairs. They might have it. If not, there's plenty of mail order supplies uh, for gum Arabic. But one of those two places would be the first places that I would go in the city to get them. Get it. Now, um, <clears throat> gum Arabic is very interesting because uh, as a hydrocolloid, and you know, hydrocolloids, for those of you that don't know what the heck I'm talking about, are kind of these new group of thickeners. Uh, the, what's interesting about it is most hydrocolloids are uh, long uh, linear chain molecules with a small number of backbones on it, right? A small number of little side units, rather. Um, The gum arabic is the only normal one other than uh, amylopectin, which is the big, bald starch molecule, uh, uh, that is ball-shaped, right? And so what that means for gum arabic is that you can have very high percentage gum arabic solutions that aren't too thick, Right, so you can put a fairly high uh, 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 percentage of gum arabic into your solutions, and still have them be pourable fluid. Right. The other cool thing about gum arabic is gum arabic has in it a protein that is is basically it comes with the gum, and and originally was considered an impurity. But when you remove the gum, the protein from the gum arabic, the gum arabic doesn't work anymore uh, to do what you want it to do because gum arabic isn't just a thickener, although it is a bodying agent, right? And when you add a lot of it, it can add a lot of body and viscosity to your syrup. It's also uh, an emulsifier, so you can get flavors into things using it. And, and it's pretty cool because unlike other emulsifiers, when it's diluted, it doesn't break. And that's why it used to be made for – it used to be used uh, to as an emulsifier for soda syrups. Um, now they have other things that are you know, not necessarily uh, dependent upon the Sudan <laughs> to, for their sourcing. Uh, but the and are cheaper, but it, that was one of its original uses. It, so it could probably also uh, stabilize a head in a shaken drink or stabilize bubbles uh, in in a shaken drink. So it, it's very interesting. I don't happen to have any of the ratios in my head, but what I would do is put the gum arabic into uh, the water first. Um, it should dissolve, I believe, at room temperature, but you can heat it to speed it. It's not going to hurt it at all, right? I would try to powder the gum arabic as much as you can beforehand uh, to speed the dissolution of it. 
And uh, then after that, uh, you know, you could heat it, add the sugar to it, and make. The, I would definitely do it that way, not the other way around. I would add the gum arabic first, and then add the uh, sugar afterwards. Um, and you can right. add, you can add a fairly large amount, but I would look into like anyone. You know, all the old references have it. I think maybe the imbibe, uh, the old, you know, the Dave Wondrich, the first, you know, the imbibe book. I think maybe has a couple recipes for it, but that that one's easy to Google. I just don't have it in my head. All right, thanks, Dave. No problem. Good luck with it. All right, thank you. Bye. <clears throat> All right. So, let's see what we're going to go into now. D- uh, okay, we have a question from E. Papineau just wrote in. Wants to know about smoking tomatoes. Well, I've never smoked a tomato. Yeah. Have you ever had a smoked tomato? I've had smoked tomato things. Yeah, I know. Mm, I've never smoked a tomato. But in general, when you're smoking something, uh, the rule is is that – I mean I don't know whether you're going to pick up color or not. But you're going to want to get uh, – it's somewhat dry and tacky, not overly wet. You're obviously uh, going to want to peel the tomatoes uh, or at very least kind of split them. But I would peel them and semi-desiccate them, like partially dry them first. Uh, then after they're partially dry, then I would smoke them and then finish the drying out. I mean I wouldn't – you know, a tomato, when you're smoking something – uh, smoking has certain kind of preservative effects and bacteriostatic effects and things like that. But really with a tomato, uh, it's just – it's got a huge water content. And so to preserve it, you're really going to want to just reduce that water content. And so that's going to be the main preservation technique. If you want the smoke flavor to pick up, but you don't want it too heavy or to become acrid, I would just make sure that they're mostly you know, maybe uh, two-thirds to three-quarters dry then smoke them until they pick up the flavor that you want, and then continue your dehydration uh, at a low temperature uh, so you don't alter the flavor too much from that point out. That seems like good advice, right? Yes. <laughs> the rare piece of good advice. Okay. Derek Bodkin. like that name. Bodkin? Bodkin. like that. Uh, Derek Bodkin uh, writes in uh, about uh, rice flour. You know, I have Bodkins in my family. Really? Yes. Anyway, uh, Derek Bakken writes in on uh, rice flour. Hi, everyone. Another quick question. I've got a bunch of rice flour. What sort of cool things can I do with it? Since it lacks gluten, right, I'd imagine baking with it would be tricky. How about a roux? All right. Well, interesting you should say. There's no such thing as just rice flour, right? I mean, there is. It's labeled that way. But basically, rice flour breaks down into two separate kinds of things. There's glutinous rice flour, a.k.a. sweet rice flour, a.k.a. waxy rice flour, a.k.a. sticky rice flour, right? And that's rice flour that's made from what they call glutinous rice. And what glutinous rice is, it has no gluten, but it's very high, very low in amylose, the uh, long-chain um, starch molecules I told you before, and extremely high, like 100% amylopectin. And uh, what those are, what that kind of flour is great for is making mochi. And mochi, uh, you know, you don't have to make it in the flour. I've ma- I can make mochi from just from sticky rice, which is kind of the cool way to do it, right? And, you know, the really cool way to do it is to get sumo wrestler dudes in loincloths beating it with mallets after you cook it. That's a real cool way to make mochi. But most of us are just going to buy uh, glutinous rice flour or mochi flour they sell. If you really want the high-grade stuff, buy stuff called mochi flour. And... You mix it, and the cool thing is is that it's got this dense flavor, but you can grill it or fry it, and it puffs up like a lunatic. Amylopectin is fantastic at puffing, whether or not it's a, a, you know, semi-dried, and then it puffs like a puff snack, or whether or not it's just like in a donut form. If you ever had a mochi donut, like Japanese mochi's donut, great. Anyway, so that's one form of uh, rice flour. Uh, <clears throat> and then the other one is, you know, rice flour that has a certain amount of um, uh, amylose in it. Now... Uh, and that's what you use for most other kind of cooking applications. So in terms of uh, thickening for making a roux, right? So roux we typically think of uh, with wheat flour. Now, uh, wheat flour is kind of the weakest of the flours in terms of thickening. Rice, is, rice flour is going to thicken a little bit more than wheat flour, corn a little bit more than rice, arrowroot a little bit more than corn, and potato the most, uh, starch. The problem with something like potato starch, and the reason we don't use it more often, is even though it makes things super thick, as you cook it, it breaks down very quickly, right? Cornstarch also has problems because it gets thick really real fast and it's going to stay thick. But when it cools down, it sets up a lot harder than when it was hot. Whereas wheat starch is a little less finicky that way than corn. But rice is kind of in between the corn and the wheat and will work fine for a roux, especially if you want to do something uh, that's gluten-free, if that's interested, uh, interesting to you. Um, it should work uh, just fine. Uh, it's also used a lot 
in uh, deep frying as either uh, a portion of your batter or as uh, a the dusting beforehand. The reason it's used is because it doesn't have any gluten. It makes things very crispy without making them hard, right? Because it doesn't have the kind of the protein that forms together you get from a wheat flour. So adding a certain amount of white rice, you know, neutral white rice flour to a batter recipe is going to increase the crispy crunchiness but not the hardness of the batter. So Heston Blumenthal uses it in his, um, in his uh, fish and chips recipe. Uh, a lot of Thai recipes have it. And you can make actually uh, almost like puffed uh, crispy snacks just by making a rice batter and, fr- and frying it. And it's good as a garnish. I mean I wouldn't necessarily eat it um, on, on its own. <clears throat> in bread baking, you can add a certain amount to bread to round out the wheat flour and reduce the amount of wheat in there slightly, although I don't really see the point in that. Uh, but it is used as a dusting for an, almost like an anti-stick along with flour uh, in the same way that cornmeal is used for. So it can be used that way. Uh, another interesting thing you might want to look at is something that I used to make like a long time ago. When I was rating my mom's cookbooks, uh, one of the first cookbooks I rated, I started making bread uh, in college in a uh, – <coughs> uh, General Electric or Westinghouse, I forget, used to sell turkey ovens and they're basically – like large crock pots that you cook turkeys in for Thanksgiving. And in the 50s and 60s, these were used because you wanted to be able to use your oven for something else and cook your turkey uh, on your countertop. And they kind of fell out of popularity probably because they probably don't make a good turkey. I don't know. I never cooked a turkey in one. But I picked one up for about two bucks uh, at a thrift shop when I was in college and used it to bake bread in my dorm room. And one of the first books I stole from my mom was her 1977 copy of the Sunset uh, Bread Baking uh, book. And uh, which at the time I thought was a pretty good book. And uh, they had something in it called Dutch Crunch, which is a bread coating, uh, bread treat, tr- a crust treatment that I've never seen really around. But I'm sure people still make it, but it's really cool and it's a rice flour trick. So here's what you do. You take – and I'm sorry it's in tablespoons, but I just wrote it down this morning from the book. You, one and a half tablespoons sugar. I still kept the book. I stole it you know, 20 change years ago, more than 20 years ago, and I still have it. Anyway, uh, 1.5 tablespoons sugar. Four, pa- four packs of yeast, right, which is a lot. Pay attention to that, four packs. Half teaspoon salt, three-quarters cup rice flour, two teaspoons of oil, and uh, basically a half to two-thirds cup warm water. You let it stir it, let it rise for 30 minutes, and you paint it on your bread before you bake it, and it gets this, like, intensely thick, crunchy, like, funny-looking but delicious crust, crust uh, called Dutch Crunch. So try that out, Derek, and tell me how it works. All right, so... Have an interesting – and this is one of the reasons I was late because this is what I was uh, researching and time just ran away from me. Hastings from the Underground Bar, which is a portion of the Underground Food Collective, uh, writes in about cherry pits. We are processing what's essentially a pallet's worth of cherries at our prep kitchen right now, and I'm sitting on an insane quantity of cherry pits. We've made delicious demonstration batches of cherry pit amaretto with brandy and a relatively high concentration of cherry pits. But I'm generally aware of the risks associated with the pits of stone fruit and haven't been able to find a concrete source uh, that conclusively outlines how they can be manipulated or processed to eliminate that risk prior to infusion. Varying sources say roasting or blanching the pits takes care of the problem. I assume if a method works for one variety of stone pits, it would be applicable to the others as well. Could I weigh in on this? Earlier this week, Hastings emailed Darcy O'Neill to ask the same question because Darcy had a recipe for infused maraschino liqueur that involved the pits of the maraschino cherry. Not really, whatever the cherries are called. Anyway, the uh, cherry, cherry pits. It's an aside uh, uh, in a larger post on preserving cocktail cherries. The problem is the amaretto that uh, Hastings is making and some of the other applications they've been toying with involve pit concentrations that are 20 to 100 times greater than the recipe Darcy referenced. Okay, Darcy O'Neill, for those of you not uh, who don't know cocktail blogs, uh, is one of the great uh, like scientific, technical uh, drink and cocktail writers. Wrote a book called uh, Fix the Pumps, which is extremely influential over the last year and a half uh, or two years. I forget how long ago it came out. Basically reviving uh, old soda traditions. And is, in fact is selling products – uh, that have been kind of extinct for a while, including lactart, which is uh, you know a, a lactic acid based uh, acidifier for use in sodas, and uh, uh, acid phosphates, which is uh, phosphoric acid based uh, soda acidifiers. 
So he's selling these things, and that book, uh, extremely, extremely influential in the comeback of interesting sodas. I mean, people have been working on interesting sodas for a while, but kind of without a lot of basis. And he's providing a lot of basis and contextualizing of the old recipes for uh, kind of modern people. So uh, underread by JQ Public, but very influential among the kind of cocktail and drink thinking crowd. Fix the pumps. Anyway, so uh, Darcy wrote back to um, Ellen, by the way, in case you don't know what's going on. Stone fruits contain um, two different things, many different things, but two things that people are worried about. Amygdalin, uh, which basically breaks down into cyanide, which is why – and that's why you know cyanide smells like uh, burnt almonds. You don't want too much. Anyway, amygdalin and a lesser quantity of something called prunicin, which is you know also breaks down into cyanide. So – uh, Darcy wrote, wrote back to Hastings. The problem with the amygdalin and the stone and pits uh, is that the form in there, which is what's called a glycoside, which is a sugar bound to the uh, cyanide, right, uh, is only released when it encounters specific digestive enzymes, which are found in our digestive systems. Uh, and Darcy's had some conversations with sugar syrup companies that make uh, syrups from fruit stones and say that there aren't any there isn't any cyanide in their product. And the problem with that method, Darcy says, Darcy says, is that they're actually looking for cyanide and not for the amygdalin, which is what's going to get you when you, when you do it. Uh, but he says that small amounts of pits aren't going to hurt you. But Hastings is pointing out, what the hell? I'm using 20 to 100 times what you used. Am I going to die or not? Well, it's a very interesting question, Hastings. I don't know if you're going to die. Here's what happens. When you eat a whole bunch of products with amygdalin in it, like uh, apricot kernels are the classic one, or uh, uh, pits from cherries, etc., uh, the amygdalin in it breaks down and forms cyanide, uh, you know, uh, cyanide, uh, HCN, you know, hydrocyanic acid or whatever, and benzaldehyde. Benzaldehyde is what gives you the taste that you want, right? And it's done via an enzymatic reaction. Now, there is an uh, enzyme in the pit. So what you want to do, the way they get rid of this is you grind – don't roast it. Roasting, I've you know, some people say roasting gets rid of uh, gets rid of it. Roasting is going to get rid of any free cyanide in the pit, but isn't going to degrade the amygdalin at all. So as soon as you eat it, you're still going to have it. What I would do, and what everyone does uh, commercially, is they break it, they grind up the seeds roughly, then they soak them in water for a period of one to three days. What's happening there is cyanide. Uh, a free, the free cyanide things are very soluble in water, whereas the, uh, the benzaldehyde, which is the aroma and the flavor you want, is not. Furthermore, <clears throat> uh, enzyme it, – it's soluble, but not that much. Um, enzymes are in the pit, and when you break it up, those enzymes are going to go to work on the amygdalin and break it down into the, uh, the cyan free cyanide stuff and the stuff with the flavor, the benzaldehyde. So what you then do is you soak it for a couple of days, then you drain it, and you cook it. And when you cook it, any free cyanide is extremely volatile and will boil off because the cyanide, the stuff that's going to kill you, boils off at like 78 Fahrenheit. You know, obviously leave the lid off the pan and don't breathe in the vapors. Uh, and then what's left over should be fairly uh, amygdalin-free and fairly cyanide-free. That said, I can't give you any numbers that are going to be 100 percent uh, safe. Um, it's kind of it's a tough thing. I can't. I can't really give you a, a number and say that you won't die, but that is the way things are, re things are reduced. You can further reduce the amount of uh, amygdalin and stuff through uh, fermentation, but you have to get a specific strain of yeast, the one that does tempeh works, or specific bacteria, specific funguses. They work like te tempeh fermentation works and certain other things, but don't count on it. Um, it, it, you know, so what do you, what do you think? Yeah. 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 Uh, interesting. I saw another uh, article while I was researching this called Why Are So Many Plants Cyanogenic? Interesting question, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't know so many were, but it turns out that a disproportionate number of our food plants uh, have these glycosides, these sugar bound with uh, cyanide uh, and other stuff. Uh, in them. And the theory of this paper, why are so many plants cyanogenic, is that um, these plants don't get eaten by uh, animals as much, and, but humans are good at figuring out how to not get poisoned by them. And so we tend to eat them, and that's why a disproportionate number of these products are eaten by people. And um, some large number uh, percentage uh, have certain stuff in them. Uh, among them, wheat and maize have a small amount, I guess, in the sprouts to stop the sprouts from getting eaten. But sorghum, the sprouts, the seeds are fine, but the sprouts have huge amounts of it in it. And so sorghum sprouts are poisonous unless you cook the hell out of them. And I always knew sprouts were poisonous. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's just further confirmation mm-hmm. that Sprouts, she is a poison, right? <laughs> anyway, so I hope this has been somewhat useful. And here's what we're going to round out with today. John Larry writes in and says, uh, my name is John Larry. I would like to know if you have an old pressure cooker. My God, do I have old pressure cookers, right, Nastasha? Yeah, you do. Yeah, we do. Uh, available that I'm looking for less expensive ones than the ones that I have. Could you let me know the prices for old pressure cookers? And I'd be happy to pay by credit card. Well, pray. John, pay by credit card. Oh. Yeah. See, I John. I thought that was spam. It's not spam. No one writes a letter asking for a used pressure cooker that's spam. It was, a dic- it was the words he used that made me think. Pressure cooker or credit card? <laughs> Which was. Anyways. Uh, John, uh, fellow person with two last names like myself, uh, two first names rather. Why? Because your mom couldn't afford. My, my mom couldn't afford a last name, so I got two first ones. <laughs> Boom. Anyway, so uh, while we are not in the business of selling used pressure cookers, I do agree that pressure cookers cost quite a bit of money. Uh, you know, uh, the pressure cooker that I use every day costs well over two hundred bucks. You can get a decent pressure cooker or figure workarounds for pressure cookers. I'm not going to tell you to modify a pressure cooker like I did on the blog last week. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can get one for under $100. I wouldn't recommend buying a used pressure cooker because the seals on it are probably about to go anyway, and you're going to have to buy a new seal. could be clogged up. It's just a world of headache. Go out there and research one of the cheaper uh, pressure cookers. I'm not going to, you know, not going to push any, any brands online. But, uh, yeah, imagine, imagine if we were... Like, if we ever had a rummage sale, it would be crazy, Ooh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. You should have one to raise some money. A rummage sale? A rummage sale. You don't want to rummage through my stuff. Anyways, <laughs> uh, today, tomorrow, I'm flying out to Colombia. We're going to be doing a, a, demo, a demo in, uh, in Colombia, the country, uh, and in Bogota, who, who's I can't pronounce properly, but I'm going to be doing a variation on milk soup, on, on Colombian milk soup. Uh, which should be interesting. Fly back for one day just to do this radio show. That's a lie. But I'm here though, right? <laughs> yeah, you are here. Yeah, I'm here. I'll do that. And then I fly out. And then the next Tuesday, I'll be in Harvard. So I'm going to try two weeks from now to do it live from Harvard with McGee. It's not during the class time, is it, the show? I don't think so. so? I think I'm going to be away too. So I might be able to do it. Anyway, so I will have been, uh, next time I speak to you people, I will have been to South America for the very first time. Cooking issues. <laughs> The following is a message from Nofa and Y. Do you dig local food? Love organic farmers? Do you crave to be part of a growing movement of consumers concerned with the state of our nation's food system? Then sign up today to take the Nofa and Y's Locavore Challenge this September. Join 5,000 other New York Locavores that are hungry, active, and ready to change our food system. Learn more at www.nylocavorechallenge.com.